In the first part of this two-part series on OCD, we learned all about the many ways OCD can present itself and cleared up some common misconceptions about the disorder. Naturally, you may then ask, what do we do about it? Can it be treated? Is there a cure? In the second part of our OCD series, we'll try to answer these questions again with the help of our guest, Dr. Mark Watling, a psychiatrist from London, Ontario. But first, before we jump into OCD management as we know it today, it may be helpful to jump back to a time before Monica from Friends and Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. Like, way, way before all of that. As early as the 17th century in the Western world, obsessions and compulsions were described as scruples, defined as trouble where trouble is over and doubts when doubts are resolved. As a result, people with such obsessions and compulsions were thought to have the condition of scrupulosity. Interestingly enough, these descriptions were found not in medical but religious texts, due to the predominance of obsessions and compulsions surrounding religion, possibly a reflection of the culture at the time. Sometimes, scrupulosity was also likened to melancholy, which is similar to what we call depression today. This detail becomes more interesting later. Unfortunately, around that time, the understanding of medicine was very limited, let alone any understanding of mental illness. Illness was believed to be born out of an imbalance of four bodily humors, which were believed to be blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. To spare you the details, bloodletting was the method of choice for treating this scrupulosity. This goes without saying, but this was not exactly evidence-based medicine at its finest. Moving into the 18th and 19th centuries, obsessions and compulsions slowly began to shift away from religious preoccupation to other common themes we see today like contamination and sexuality. The medical field began to take note of these symptoms and scrupulosity became a medical concern, although they were far from understanding it or knowing what to do with it. Some thought it was disordered will, Others believed it was disordered emotions, or even an intellectual disability. And OCD patients around this time were typically institutionalized in asylums. It isn't until the 20th century that we start seeing some of the foundations of how we manage OCD today. This was during the time of Sigmund Freud, an Austrian neurologist and namesake of the modern day term, the Freudian slip. His work on psychoanalysis in particular became the mainstay of the treatment of OCD and many other mental illnesses for decades. Psychoanalysis operated under the belief that the mind is subconsciously influenced by forgotten moments in one's childhood, and that raising awareness of the subconscious can lead to liberation and therapeutic effect. In the following decades, Freudian psychology waned in popularity as other forms of therapy were developed, and finally in the 1970s, Stanley Rockman developed what we call Exposure Response Prevention, or ERP, which would go on to remain as one of the pillars of OCD treatment today. Exposure response prevention. So exposure, and this works for kind of all anxiety related problems, you expose the person to the thing that causes the anxiety, right? So that's the exposure bit. And then response prevention is you get the person to not do the thing that OCD wants them to do, right? So you get them to prevent themselves from doing the normal response that OCD wants them to do. So if you were worried about germs, dirt, and contamination, exposure might be getting you to touch the inside of a garbage can. And then response prevention will be getting you to not wash your hands. Now, the problem is when you do that, your anxiety is gonna spike, right? And normally that spike in anxiety is what's gonna drive you to wash your hands because you know washing your hands is gonna make you feel better. Problem is washing your hands is gonna keep OCD alive and keep you having to wash your hands. And then you'll stay stuck in OCD. 
So response prevention says, don't wash your hands. Okay, fine, but then your anxiety is going to spike. And what we've got to teach patients is that the, the spike in anxiety is temporary, that anxiety never stays up forever, that yes, it will spike up, but if you wait it out, you will eventually come down the other side of that spike and your anxiety will dissipate without you ever having to wash your hands. So in other words, there's two ways to get your anxiety to go away. You can wash your hands, it'll go away right away, but that keeps you stuck in OCD. Or you cannot wash your hands, your anxiety will eventually go away, it takes longer, but doing it that way will actually free you from OCD over the long term. So it's kind of like short-term pain for long-term gain if you do ERP. As the patient learns to manage their anxiety, ERP therapy usually involves moving up a pre-established fear hierarchy, starting from the least distressing to the most distressing scenarios. There could also be an imagination component where patients are asked to envision their obsessions coming true while resisting their compulsions. Through many therapy sessions and even practicing this restraint at home, patients can achieve a significant reduction in symptoms compared to other forms of therapy both in controlled experimental and real-world studies. So that's great then, right? ERP for everybody! Unfortunately, there can be a whole slew of barriers to actually being able to access ERP. For starters, ERP can be a long process before a patient starts to see any results. Although some people start improving within weeks, others can take months to experience any benefit. Adherence can also be poor and many drop out prematurely. And depending on the healthcare system where you live, ERP can get quite pricey. Yeah, so that is the tricky thing with psychotherapy is that often the people that do psychotherapy, at least in Ontario, so often the people who do psychotherapy for OCD are psychologists and psychologists aren't covered by, you know, the provincial health plan. Uh, so patients are either paying out of their pocket to see a psychologist or if they have private insurance, then if they can use their private insurance to access psychological help. There are there are some people that do psychotherapy who are covered by a provincial health care plan. Like I, uh, I do psychotherapy with patients and because I'm a physician, you know, I, I can build a provincial health health plan for that. So patients that would see me would get it for free. But I think people like me are not incredibly common in the So that, that can make it a little bit tricky to access. The larger centers probably have specialized clinics. So those larger centers, people can probably access this stuff a little bit more easily than in more rural areas or, or smaller centers. Another barrier could be finding someone to provide this service in the first place. ERP, despite its effectiveness, is pretty underutilized. A survey of almost 700 psychotherapists in Germany conducted in 2019 attempted to understand some of these barriers to practice. What they found was that one of the main barriers to ERP was its impracticability. The unpredictable nature of it made it difficult for outpatient clinics to schedule other patients after ERP sessions. ERP was also said to be distressing to practice both for the patient and the therapist leading to fears of harming the patient and many therapists having had bad past experiences with it. This contributes to an overall shortage of psychotherapists willing to even provide ERP, even if one can afford it. It can be tough to even find somebody that knows how to do appropriate psychotherapy as well. And that's the tricky thing, right? Like some people, some, some therapists will say that they offer psychotherapy for OCD, but I think you have to be careful. Like you really, if you really want to be treated well, you need to get somebody who does cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure response prevention, and they actually know what they're doing. Because it can be a really, really tricky illness to treat from a psychotherapeutic point of view. And you want somebody who knows what they're doing. And you ideally want somebody who has a lot 
of experience and can understand how tricky OCD can be and how to navigate all of that sneakiness that OCD can throw your way as you're trying to treat it. This is why medication, the second pillar of OCD treatment, is so important. We mentioned earlier that OCD was once referred to as melancholy, which was depression in those times. Well, interestingly enough, antidepressants are also the core pharmacological management of OCD. Now, this is actually more about the fact that the antidepressants are also first line for many anxiety disorders. And as we discussed in the previous episode, OCD centers around anxiety as the driving force. The most effective medication for OCD is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI for short. This class of antidepressant includes medications such as escitalopram, sertraline, and fluoxetine, some of which you may have heard of as they are also popular first-line treatments for depression. A 2016 meta-analysis of studies looking at SSRIs for OCD reported significant improvement in symptoms in as early as two weeks, and the effectiveness is comparable with ERP. Probably easier to access for people, right? There's a lot of medications that are available. Family doctors can prescribe medications fairly easily for obsessive compulsive disorder, kind of the first line standard medications that you would try if you've never taken a medication before. That's the kind of thing that a family doctor should probably know how to do and should be fairly comfortable prescribing. If it gets more complicated, so if you start, if you've tried a few medications and nothing's really worked out, then you might need to be referred to a psychiatrist to, to kind of go from there and, and look into some second or third line treatment. Wait, so then why would anyone bother with ERP if SSRIs act faster and are easier to get? But don't forget antidepressants have their disadvantages as well. Some particularly unpopular common side effects of SSRIs include weight gain, nausea, decreased libido, and sexual dysfunction. For patients, it's important to weigh these pros and cons and understand what to expect. And whenever I talk to patients, I kind of say, listen, there are two equally good treatments for OCD. There are a bunch of medications that can be very, very helpful for people with OCD. And then there's non-medication treatment. There's this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy and this certain kind of cognitive behavioral therapy is called ERP. And then I might explain to them what ERP is just for this, as I've done for you. Some patients, in fact, a lot of patients in my experience would choose both, right? They choose to combine the both. I'll take a medication and I'll do ERP. I want to do everything I can possibly do to help myself. For some people, that that makes a lot of sense because some people have such severe OCD that they probably won't be able to do ERP um, until they have a medication on board, which would just kind of lower their anxiety enough to allow them to even engage in the psychotherapy, right, in, in the ERP. Uh, so in those cases, you get a medication on board first, and then you would proceed uh, with ERP. Some patients would just choose ERP without doing a medication. Some patients would say, listen, I don't have the time or the energy. Or the, I don't want to put in the effort to do the ERP. If you can just give me a medication I can take every day and that's going to fix my OCD, I'd rather do that. So I often leave it up to the patients. I'll just kind of discuss the pros and cons of both. I'll say that both are equally effective. And then we'll leave it up to, up to patients to, uh, to go which, whichever direction they want to. In terms of pursuing both, research suggests combination therapy is similarly, if not slightly more effective compared to either or. A review article posted March 2022 suggested that combination therapy was either equal or in severe cases that are unresponsive to monotherapy more effective than just having one or the other. So if someone does have the luxury to do both, it can be a viable choice. I think as well, if people do cognitive behavioral therapy, so if they do the ERP, the neat thing about that is that 
once you do cognitive behavioral therapy, it's kind of yours for life. Like you, you learn a set of skills that you can use into the future, no matter how your OCD might manifest itself going forward, is the same set of skills that will continue to help forever. And I think people like that idea because most of my patients anyway, ultimately don't want to be on medication forever. And if you don't want to be on medication forever, then I would say at some point, you probably need to add ERP to your treatment plan because that might allow you to be free of medication at some point if you're able to implement those ERP skills on a regular basis. All in all, with the variety of options available, more patients with OCD are able to live happy, fulfilling lives thanks to the advances in treatment compared to tens of hundreds of years ago. However, quantitative data is still sparse and we have a long way to go in understanding OCD so that we can find even better treatments. Some other treatment modalities approved in the last 100 years are surgical interventions, mainly surgical ablation and deep brain stimulation. The former involves targeted surgical destruction of certain parts of the brain to remodel brain function, while the latter uses electrodes implanted onto the brain to send electrical impulses that affect your brain circuitry. The newer deep brain stimulation is largely reversible and flexible compared to ablation, and ablation is typically reserved as a last resort. There is also a non-surgical, non-invasive version of deep brain stimulation that has shown effectiveness in treating OCD. This is called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. TMS, which places electromagnets on the head instead of electrodes on the brain, was initially developed as another treatment for depression, but it has also shown promising benefits for OCD patients. On the pharmacological side, many other medications are being studied as potential treatments for OCD as our understanding of the brain and psychiatry improves. The discovery of the importance of glutamic acid and inflammation in the pathophysiology of OCD sparked the study of anti-glutamatergics such as ketamine and anti-inflammatory agents like NSAIDs and probiotics as treatments. Some other notable candidates include psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and nitrous oxide gas, also known as laughing gas, each with their own theories about their mechanism of action. Yeah, I think as we get a better understanding of the brain in general, it's, you know, all psychiatric treatment is going to get better and going to change. I, I think really psychiatry in general is in its infancy. Um, the brain is the last organ in the body that we're going to be able to understand. And we're probably never going to be able to understand it completely. I read this great quote once that said, if the brain was so simple that we could understand it, we'd be too simple to understand it, which, which is, is kind of neat. But I think it says a lot, right? Like that is so true that that is clearly the most complicated organ in our body. There are more cells in your head than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy, right? Like it is complicated. The three pounds of cells sitting up in your head is incredibly complicated. And we are just at the beginning of understanding how that works. And at the beginning of kind of mapping some of these, these neuronal circuits that are involved in disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder. So the more we start to understand about the brain and how it works, the more exact and precise our treatments can get. Up till now, a lot of the treatments that we have in psychiatry and for OCD have almost been found by accident, right? It's like, oh, okay, well, we have these medications that we use for treating depression, but you know what? We also notice that when you give them to people with OCD, those people also get better too. Oh, isn't that interesting, right? So it's almost like an accidental discovery. The future of psychiatry is going to be much more directed treatments, right? That are going to be actually based on brain knowledge and thought out. 
rather than accidental discoveries. That's kind of the future of psychiatry in general and, and the future of, of OCD. But like I said, you know, psychiatry as a specialty is really, I mean, it's in its infancy compared to all other specialties in medicine. And I think that it's going to have the, the hugest growth in knowledge over the next 20 or 30 years. There's, you know, we probably learned everything there is to know about the heart already. So cardiology, yeah, pretty flat line, but, right? But the brain, we're, we're also, we're, we're um, honestly just at the beginning of a kind of understanding the brain. So I, I, I'm really excited about the future of psychiatry. Medical knowledge and management of OCD has come a long way from bloodletting to asylums to where we are now. At the same time, the awareness and understanding of OCD in the general population is improving as well which is important in getting people to recognize OCD, whether it's in themselves, a loved one, or a stranger. That way they can have a chance to get help now that our treatments have actually proven efficacy to improve people's lives. I think I, I would just like people to know that OCD is, you know, it's a real illness. It affects a lot of people. It affects about 3% of the population, which is, which is a big number. I mean, 3% might sound low, but when you, when you apply it to an entire population of people, it's a lot of people. The quicker we can get people to identify OCD, the quicker we can get people therapy and medication, the better off people are going to be. Because if we're able to treat OCD, it can make a dramatic difference in people's lives. So that's the other thing I want people to know is that it's a treatable condition. There's lots of help for it. And if you can free yourself from OCD and from the anxiety that gets attached to OCD, life can just really open up for you. Because as we said earlier, OCD really is a hostage taker, right? It keeps you, it keeps you held hostage. It lies to you. It makes you do stuff that you don't really want to spend your time doing, right? Um, and and if I can help people to be free from that, um, then I think that I think that that's kind of the contribution that I want to be making anyway to help people see that there's another way to live their lives rather than following the rules that OCD has has outlined for them. And that's the end of our series on OCD. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review and subscribing to our show. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at hashtag healthpodcast or like us on Facebook. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, your host, Patrick Kipp. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.